All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Summer's begun. I think we're in full swing, and you know, it means we're halfway through the year, so I think it's probably a good time to take stock on where we are on things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, summer is here, and the heat is here, right? So make sure everyone's taking steps to avoid the impacts of high temperatures. I think MSHA has kicked off their heat awareness initiative. You know, I, I know certainly OSHA has. So yeah, let's make sure everybody's staying hydrated and as cool as they can be. So on today's episode, we are joined by a couple of special guests. We've got DJ Schmutz and Jennifer Paget from MSHA Safety Services. And so they are uh, mine safety and health consultants and both, you know, obviously experienced safety professionals. They're going to give us an overview of what MSHA Safety Services is and how they can help operators. So we've got Jennifer. Jennifer, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, my name is Jennifer Pageant, and uh, I've been in mining for about 14 years. I spent some time in the Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia areas, um, and then moved over into uh, the eastern side of the country with Martin Marietta, and most recently was able to partner up with DJ as the East Regional Safety Director for MSHA Safety Services. So, you know, with those that years of time have done a lot of training, some partnerships and walks and talks with the MSHA officials and inspectors, as well as partnering up with some aggregate associations throughout the areas I've been in, as well as the NSSGA component. So with this transition to more of the consulting and training, I have found it very refreshing, especially in this day and age of MSHA, to be able to make a difference and feel like from an operator perspective, as well as a new miner perspective, being able to generate some excitement and training, as well as uh, being informative and making sure everybody knows what the rules and regulations are. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's always super important, right? Just to know what you need to do to comply. I know MSHA is always looking at that. So how about you, DJ? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then move into what MSHA Safety Services does? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. So my background is in occupational exposure. Um, I'm an industrial hygienist by schooling, and I always tell everybody by choice also. Um, one of the big things, uh, especially with the MSHA Silica Enforcement Initiative, is uh, understanding what your risk is, what your employee's risk is, and what you can do about it. My background, uh, I started as an industrial hygienist with Rio Tinto Kennecott in Utah. And uh, they had a big landslide just over 10 years ago, actually. And I was a low man on the totem pole. Didn't know what that was going to mean uh, for myself, for my family. Married at the time, a couple of kids. And I uh, got a, uh, an interview and a job offer unexpectedly in southwest Wyoming in the Trona industry. And moved up there. My wife and I planned on for just two years because it's the middle of nowhere, and we're at uh, we're at year ten now in Southwest Wyoming, and uh, love it. I worked here in the in the Trona industry uh, until about uh, two and a half years ago. I'd started Mshaw Safety Services, and got busy enough, got enough clients that it was time to jump in with both feet. Uh, and it was actually ironically two months after we had our sixth kid. 
So nothing like cutting your ties with benefits two months after having your sixth. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so we went in feet first and, and it was awesome. I uh, grew from, you know, working with one company to currently we work with about 225 companies uh, across the U.S., Canada, and into Mexico. Um, we've done virtual training, MSHA training in uh, 10 countries, um, every state except for Hawaii. So if anybody in Hawaii is on here and needs some virtual training, hit us up so we can knock that one off the list. <laughs> and and the biggest thing is we've been able to help a lot of people, right, uh, with, with the solutions we provide. So we, uh, we do a lot of virtual training. We do some in-person training, and we've been rolling out some uh, some consulting, uh, where we do some hands-on walking through your plant. What's MSHA looking for? Uh, how do you talk to MSHA during an MSHA inspection? What are things you say? What don't you say? What if you don't want to say anything? Do you got to say something? And uh, really just just prepping um, because it could be a scary experience, you know. And, uh, myself and Jennifer both have thousands of hours walking with MSHA inspectors. I worked at an underground mine for eight years. And we got inspected quarterly, and it would take them five weeks to inspect us, right? A long time. And uh, you get to know MSHA, um, you get to know the inspectors, you get to know their families, right? You know their people just like you. Um, but they're sent to do a job, just like you're sent to do a job. And understanding that, and um, pretty important. So we uh, help people prep for that, help companies prep for that, and, and reduce their liability and their risk. Well, it's interesting that uh, Jennifer and DJ, that you, you talked about the training aspect of your work and how you're able to help companies navigate their requirements and also make sure their employees are properly trained, because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're really going to focus in on training. It's an MSHA point of emphasis. Since I've been doing this, frankly, it seems like it's a point of emphasis more often than not, but... I think if you listen to those quarterly stakeholder calls that MSHA has, they've been mentioning training frequently lately. I know in my practice, I'm seeing more training uh, citations and orders and not just more in volume, but more in severity. So whereas maybe they would have been treated as a technical citation, $100 non-SNS, nobody affected citation. Now we're seeing them written as SNS, higher negligence. And so forth. And we can talk about that in some more detail, but that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, and I think that, I think we want to sort of lay the groundwork here um, just so everybody's on the same page and, you know, whether it's part 48 or part 46, uh, there's a requirement that there's a training plan that the operator has to develop, um, whether it is deemed approved by virtue of what's in it or whether it requires formal approval as dependent on whether it's a part 48 or part 46, or if you're operating in the part 46 world and don't have everything in it, um, for whatever reason, you can request approval from MSHA. But, you know, the, the starting point is clearly the training plan um, that an operator is required to develop. And then we have certain specific types of training. And so uh, Jennifer and DJ, if you could, Talk to us just a little bit. You know, the big ones that, that we've highlighted here, the new minor training, the newly hired experienced minor training, the hazard training, and the task training. Just kind of give our listeners a general overview so we're on the same page. What are these types of trainings? Yeah, thanks, Arthur. And I would add to this uh, annual refresher training also. Annual refresher too, yes. So uh, before you go to work at a mine site, you got to be trained. And 
whenever I'm doing a new minor training or refresher training, I always ask people, I say, how many hours of training do you have to have before you go work at an OSHA plant, right? Which makes the bulk of training in the U.S. And everybody's like, I don't know, 30 hours, 40 hours. And I'm like, no, you just got to have hazard training. I was like, the fact that, that the feds put this in the law in the 70s, that you have to have 24 hours of training or 40 hours of training or whatever before you can even go do work, that's a big deal. And then you got to refresh that every year with eight hours of training. And if you go to a new facility, you know, you got some experienced minor requirements and then um, operating any piece of equipment or doing a job, anything, you just, you got to be trained on it. Yeah. And one of the things that I always try to introduce, especially in our new minor training is the appreciation for minors and having that group understand that being a minor is special. Not everybody is one, not everybody can be one. And to DJ's point, there's a lot of differences when it comes to training between OSHA and MSHA that people don't understand. And by having that distinction of I am a minor is important. Um, I know my last class that I had, I had a lot of people in the class that were engineers, geologists, environmental people. So not your necessarily your boots on the ground type personnel, but having them gain that appreciation of being a minor in addition to what their career path or specialty is, in addition to those that were the boots on the ground. So I had a good number of haul truck operators, loader operators, those that were going to be experiencing mining for the first time coming out of other industries, construction, some that had never done anything. I had a gentleman, I actually felt honored. It was his first job out of high school. And I was his first impression of mining. So hopefully I did a good job at that. Same thing for the the annual refresher piece, understanding that, yes, it's topics that we have to cover and things that they have to understand. But again, that appreciation to why. Why do I need to understand fall protection? Why do I need to understand lockout, tagout, and things of that nature? And unfortunately, in 2023, we've had many examples as fatalities have occurred that we utilize to learn from. And that's where the bulk of that conversation from the training component comes in because it's not just instructing, but it's actually having conversation and pulling from their experiences and sharing those with each other that helps generate the energy in our training classes. Now, do you help operators develop training plans and then you're training off of those or, or do you typically train from your own training plan? Yes. So it depends, right? We, we train, we typically train off our training plan, which is pretty standard, right? You got uh, 10 main topics and we always train on HASCOM as well because uh, it's an important topic uh, to cover. But we do help like today, we got a, got a call this morning for a company uh, out of West Texas that is growing like crazy with the oil field stuff aggregate company and they're like hey I, I guess we heard we need a training plan and so we're putting together a training plan specific for their company which we'll then train off of for their company but uh, yeah and in terms of engagement i'm curious i've heard for example through the pandemic MSHA was much more willing to accept training uh, either online or you know through computer modules do you find, is that still the case or what do you guys think is the most effective way to, to train on some of these issues? The best way to train on these issues is to get the best trainers. 
And it uh, doesn't matter what method you use, but if you get the best trainers, they'll get retention. We feel lucky we got Jennifer. Um, she's an excellent trainer. And uh, we've got a couple other really, really um, excellent trainers as well. Mariah, who's been with me since the beginning, um, since I first started, uh, is an excellent trainer as well. And we uh, we still do about 85% virtual via live instructor-led training over the computer, right, uh, on Zoom. And it is, uh, our instructor-led training like that is as good as any in-person training I've ever seen. And it's how you can engage the classroom and the people so they get the retention that they need for that training. So the training issue, I guess, is, is an interesting one because not only it has the practical side, which you all address on the front end, right, when the training occurs, making sure it's the best training it can be, but then there's also the compliance piece. And so much of what we talk about is safety and compliance. You hope they overlap, but I think there's times they, they don't or they're just on parallel tracks, I guess. So let's talk for a little bit about the compliance piece of training. And, you know, as I mentioned before, this is something I'm seeing on the rise on the back end of more severely written citations. I think MSHA inspectors are maybe looking at training compliance with more of a fine-tooth comb. Um, Chris, is that are you seeing that in your practice as well? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's definitely feedback that I'm getting from clients is, you know, MSHA inspectors these days are actively evaluating adequacy of training, which I think brings us to, you know, yet another issue. I mean, so not only, you know, as DJ and, and Jennifer have mentioned, are you required to receive this training right before you start working at a mine? But then there's always these evaluations is, okay, well, was that training adequate, right? And then, you know, we see this come up uh, you know, certainly with new minor training and then task training, right? So when individuals are already working at a mine and then, you know, they are trained on a specific task, we have MSH inspectors actively evaluating the adequacy of that training. And not to, you know, sort of hijack this discussion, but I think an, an important point that everybody should be aware of, I was just talking to uh, a special investigator yesterday and, you know, obviously the, the accident injury rate's quite high for, you know, some operators and our fatality rate, I think right now we were at 23 as of yesterday. And so one of these issues is that MSHA has identified is, okay, where are these sort of bands of these individuals, you know, involved in these types of accidents, either fatal or serious accidents. And they're saying within the first year or so of employment, and then it jumps, the, the second most common individual is an experienced minor that have has, you know, 10 to 15 years, right? So, and, and oftentimes they are, they switch from one mine site to another, and then maybe aren't as familiar with mine specific hazards. So yes, to answer your question in a, a roundabout way, yes, we are seeing that MSHA focus. Now, DJ and, and Jennifer, is that something that you guys have been seeing as well? So from you know, a new miner standpoint, I've experienced this with DJ and then also coming out of industry. You know, in the past, you had miners that were jumping from one mining company to another mining company, whereas now you have employees that are coming into mining that have no experience. Um, not that long ago when I was in industry, I had a, a woman in new miner training and her only previous experience was a Starbucks barista. And while she was very capable of doing the job, 
you know, just that whole dynamic as I spoke to them during the training session and then got feedback from them on their experiences, you know, the understanding that one, her experience was limited from a, a hazard standpoint, but looking kind of on the positive side of it, not having experience and her being able to question things. And that's one of the things in both uh, new minor training and even in refresher training, I try to focus in on is the courage of communication and the courage of them to speak up. Because I think sometimes from a task training perspective, and this is just human nature, you know, somebody shows you how to do something and then says, you got it. And your initial response is yes. And to know when to say no, that I don't understand and having the courage to do that so you don't feel like you're a burden on your new employer. Um, but I think, too, from a supervisor's standpoint, just that that focus on the labor market, hard to get employees, having possibly less employees, and our supervisors doing more actual boots-on-the-ground work could be possibly the, uh, the reason for that increase as well. Uh, one thing I'd like to add, too, is... Uh... Uh, training issues, we see a lot more in Part 46 for new minor training, uh, at least I have, and uh, where, where companies are kicked, specifically contract companies are kicked off site at mine sites because MSHA said your training wasn't good enough that you had. Um, when they did one of those modules online with the company and they said, you guys don't know enough, you have to redo your training. Uh, we were just working with a company. Jennifer actually flew out to California to go help them out um, after their training was completed. And they had that same thing happen. They'd done the training and MSHA said it wasn't good enough. Um, with part 48, it has to be live instructor, you know, it has to be live instructor led at least or in person with an MSHA blue card. Um, part 46, we definitely see more issues with that. Well, I think you raise a good point, DJ, that I wanted to bring up. And that's that, you know, um, the consequences for getting a citation or order can be significant. Um, and you mentioned the uh, employees, contract employees, or, or production operator employees being removed from a site, and that would be the product of a 104G order. And, you know, and we've talked on this podcast before about how much discretion is vested within an MSHA inspector, and this is a perfect example of it, right? I mean, you inspector determines by whatever means that somebody has been inadequately trained they can actually remove that person from the site or have that person removed from the site by virtue of an order. Now, you can contest the order, but that doesn't help you right in the moment. Right in the moment, you probably want to get the situation rectified. And, you know, the contest process is, is, is arduous, to say the least. So, you know, th there is that. Um, the other thing is the 104G orders is considered a heightened enforcement action. So when we're looking at POV criteria, when we're looking at other indicators that MSHA looks at for, for heightened enforcement, uh, much like a D order or a D1 citation. Um, a, a 104G order is treated similarly. Um, and then frankly, what I'm seeing on the enforcement side is our training citations, should they be marked S and S? And there's, there's some legal arguments whether or not that's even proper, but I'm pretty much seeing them all being marked S and S now. And they'll, they'll include this tagline that an untrained minor is a hazard to himself or herself or others. I'm seeing that put right in the citations these days. So frankly, if that's going to be MSHA's position, which it appears to be at the moment, then we're seeing sort of this 
this pattern of how the citations are written, you know, it's something that you don't want to run into. And obviously the, you want to do the best job you can on the front end. And then if unfortunately you're faced with an enforcement action such as this and you need to defend yourself, the best way to defend yourself is by showing what you've done, right? That our folks are in fact adequately trained and we do have our ducks in a row and here's why. So um, having that record to back that up, what you've done to defend yourself, if it comes to that, um, is also critical. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Arthur. And and that's something that, I, you know, I kind of think about in terms of, you know, these days, whether it's post-pandemic or whatever the cause is, right? We we seem to have this this idea of a worker shortage. And I know, you know, a lot of operators that I've spoken with, you know, have a hard time finding folks. And then once they do, um, you know, kind of like Jennifer mentioned, we, these aren't necessarily individuals that are coming from mining backgrounds or even industrial backgrounds in any way. So DJ and Jennifer, what are some of the best approaches that you've found to incorporate, you know, these new and experienced miners and really introduce them into the mining environment? I would say as much hands-on as possible in training and as far as presenting the material that they're going to be experiencing in a mine site. So some of the big hazards, one being the heavy equipment, the size of it, things of that nature, but then also kind of taking it to their level of inexperience by way of like workplace exams. One of the things I try to do is integrate an actual task, have them come up with any type of task, doesn't have to be mining related or even industry related breaking it down into smaller pieces and then talking about the hazards associated with it and then how they're going to mitigate those hazards and then engaging the rest of the class to help them understand if they missed anything. And by going through that exercise, explaining that this is something that you should be doing on the work site in general. And while it may feel uncomfortable at first, people will start following their path, joining in and it's not going to be as uncomfortable. Hands-on uh, is the best thing, right? So we we try and introduce uh, some scenarios via videos, right, and discussions and MSHA fatalities. This is what happens on mine sites, right? And by going through uh, MSHA's fatal reports, you know, as part of our training, we do cover a lot of the recent fatalities. So people know, hey, if I climb inside this grizzly feeder, it's not a good thing. You know, if if I get in a blind spot of a truck... You know, there's significant risk there. So being aware of, like Jennifer said, of more of those hazards, really drawing awareness to those. I was going to say, it sounds to me like having folks who are newer to the industry is both a challenge, but then also a bit of an opportunity because then you can sort of train them the right way from the outset. That's right. Isn't there that proverb, train up a child in his youth the way he, he should go and when he's old, he will not depart from it, right? Same thing with a minor. There you go. <laughs> no bad habits. Are you all involved in any of the... Uh site-specific training. Do you have the opportunities to go out on mine sites to introduce the workforce to potential hazards there? So as DJ alluded to earlier, I had uh, made a trip out to California to work with a contractor, basically a, a construction contractor that was there for remediation purposes. And I got to spend a lot of time with the miners themselves and kind of walking through a pre-shift of their equipment. One of the, the challenges MSHA had identified for them is their fire extinguishers. So rather than just focusing 
in on the fire extinguisher, we focused in on the whole process and the why behind, you know, why are we checking brakes? Why are we doing this? And while most of them already knew because they were experienced at operating the equipment, I think just by having that conversation sometimes brings a new light. And then also when the inspector comes back, they have more of an understanding of what they need to say rather than letting the inspector lead them down a path, them understanding for themselves the reason why they're doing what they're doing other than because somebody told me to. Because they're professionals at what they do and for the most part, they're operating the same piece of equipment day in and day out. But knowing that you know, from one day to another, there may be something that may be minor to them, such as a backup alarm not working, but from a uh, practical standpoint, that could affect safety as well as from a regulatory standpoint. It's definitely something that the inspectors look at. One of the things that always presents a puzzle dealing with MSHA compliance is sort of the contractor production operator relationship, right? There's always who gets cited, who can get cited, what are we required to do? And, and but either the contractor or the production operator is always asking those questions. And I think most folks probably know, but in case you don't, um, there are two circuit court case decisions out there that say that in terms of citations, MSHA has the authority for a violation committed by a contractor uh, or involving a contractor has the authority to issue a citation to either the contractor, the production operator, or both. And it's MSHA's discretion how to handle that. I'll tell you, in terms of training right now, I can tell you what I'm seeing just anecdotally, and then I'll see what the rest of the group is seeing. I am seeing more focus on the production operator. I'm seeing more focus on when a contractor is involved, holding the production operator accountable for any failures or deficiencies in training of a contractor on their site. And I find that somewhat interesting because MSHA's policy documents and even some of the Part 46 regulations say that at least for some some more of like the new minor training and that type of thing that the response of a contractor employee that the responsibility tends to fall more to the contractor but I am seeing citations being issued to production operators for violations that would seem to be committed by the contractor at least as alleged so I find that interesting um, I think that as we look towards MSHA's focus, on training, are they going to be looking more intently toward the production operator as that focus comes comes into play? So those are my observations. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It's just what I'm seeing out there. But uh, Jennifer and DJ and Chris, I'll throw it open to you to talk about that issue. Yeah, I, I think we've seen that too. And a lot of times when we have contractors actually run into issues, it's when they walk into a mine site that's under an impact inspection or uh, has a big emphasis from MSHA because of their citation count or their accident record or something, that's when a lot of times contractors tend to get nailed. And we've actually, we sh we'll show them on the MDRS, Mine Data Retrieval System, how to go look. If you're going to go work at a mine site, you can look and see how much MSHA has been there because you can see their citations and prep yourself for that, knowing that you'll probably get a visit, right? And cement plants seem to be a, a really hot topic right now with MSHA, right? Lots and lots of tickets. Yeah, and I think from an operator perspective, having a, a more robust contractor protocol is helpful because rather than just welcoming on a contractor because they had the lowest bid 
or they're the only ones available at the time, those days are gone because from a, a regulatory perspective, and again, appreciating the fact that mining is different. Mining is a different industry than potentially where they came from. And that focus on making sure that those contractors that are coming on site know the hazards they're being exposed to. And then from the regulatory side, you know, as you said, Arthur, MSHA's focusing on not only the contractor, but then saying, hey, operator, you should have known this and you should have checked these credentials and their training and you didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen what Arthur has described, as everyone here has described. And I, my advice to the production operators is, look, in theory, there's a difference between production operator and the contractor. But if you're bringing folks on site, yeah, I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, their contractors are in charge of their own training. You want to make sure, whereas Jennifer, as you just said, they have very robust training. Right? I mean, that, that's just going to make everybody safer across the board. And I would say, too, one of the tools that I use when we're done with training, whether it's new minor training or the annual refresher, is the very last part of the class is walking through the 5023 and going through each one of those topics and asking them, do you feel comfortable with these topics? And if you don't, yes, I know we're at the end of class, but your safety is more important and we can expand on things if needed, um, making sure from that understanding component, but also that they understand when an inspector says, hey, did you get trained on hazard communication? They know what that means, and they know the part of the training we did that was applicable to hazard communication. That's a great ad. And one of the things uh, where operators tend to miss is uh, like truck drivers, right? Uh, historically, a lot of them haven't been trained. And and any of the plants that we work with, the mine operators we work with say, it's your responsibility. Anybody on your mine site is your responsibility and uh, only accept what you're willing to, to take on. Well, what issues, uh, Jennifer and DJ, do you see coming down the road? I mean, we're, we've heard about, Chris mentioned, uh, you know, we've heard reference to the, the injury rate, the fatality rate, MSHA's focus on training. The rest of this year, maybe even in the, in the next year or the year after, if, what are going to be the hot topics on training? What should I be looking for? What do you see coming down the road? I think you see all of the above. I think as we button up our training, I think they're going to dive into task training a lot more. MSHA re-upped their impact inspections for facilities at the beginning of this year, right? They hadn't done them for like three years and uh, started doing impact inspections again. And I think the focus of those impact inspections is not just going to be on the hazards of the workplace, but they're going to start doing a deep dive into records. And I think if they do a deep dive into records, they're going to find issues. If we even look at the administration that's in there now, they, they seem to be all around focused more on the documentation piece, more so than what they have in the past. So that being a part of it as well, that especially for task training, you know, the task training is done, making sure that whether you're a contractor or an operator, you're documenting it because at the end of the day, it's not documented, it's not completed. You know, I think that's an important piece, Jennifer. I, obviously, we've talked about the safety aspect. We've talked about meeting the aims of the regulation. But then there's also that documentation piece. In the training world, the requirements are significant. And like you said, um, if it's not documented, it's not completed. And there are requirements for documentation that have to be met. 
So that is a, would be low hanging fruit for an inspector coming in on an impact inspection, like DJ's talking about and, um, uh, and the ability to find issues. If the documentation is not what it needs to be, that would be unfortunate. So that's something we definitely would encourage our listeners to make sure they are compliant with. And like you said, Arthur, the low hanging fruit, right? If your paperwork's in order, guess what? They're not going to look as close at everything else because you're checking the boxes and they're like, we know they're going to check the boxes. So both of you, DJ and Jennifer, what advice do you have for operators going forward? You know, obviously we're sensing a shift. We're seeing, you know, some more enforcement. What do you think operators should do? I think first thing is just go through your paperwork like we've been talking about, right? Ensure everybody's got task training for any of the tasks that they're going to be doing. Um, all of their training is up to date because that is the low-hanging fruit uh, we were just talking about. And that's an easy, simple fix. You do it yourself. You know, you can call us. You know, we've been more than happy to come and do it. Because if you don't do it on your time, you're going to do it on somebody else's time. And there's usually some consequences associated with that. Yeah, and I would say, too, from a training aspect, just making sure that training that's provided is robust enough that they're going to remember. Now, we all know from a training aspect, not everybody remembers everything. And there's only, you know, a small piece of that remembered. But the important part is the hazard awareness, hazard recognition, but even more important than that, being able to speak up when there's questions and having the courage to communicate that way from a practical standpoint, we don't have some of our new miners that are truly new to mining, putting themselves in positions that potentially could hurt themselves or others. Absolutely. At the end of the day, as we say on our podcast all the time, whether it's industry, MSHA, contractor, attorney, whoever, we, you know, we all have the same goal and that's that everybody's as safe as possible. And certainly training is critical. Chris, I think we've covered a lot of ground here today. DJ and Jennifer terrific resource. I've enjoyed talking with them and I, I certainly hope our listeners have found this useful as well. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I would just to make sure. So Jennifer and DJ, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Where do they reach out? And, you know, maybe they get a Park 50 audit or, you know, some sort of training audit from you guys. Uh, great. Thank you, uh, Chris and, and Arthur. Appreciate being here. The best way to get a hold of us, uh, mshawsafetyservices.com you know it's our website uh, very active on linkedin jennifer and myself both are dj smoots uh, on linkedin and jennifer paget on linkedin feel free to hit us out there or uh, email dj at mshawsafetyservices.com or jennifer at mshawsafetyservices.com be more than happy to help you guys go through your programs what you need and ultimately reduce your risk put it to an acceptable level and help your guys go home safe every day absolutely well thank you both for your time and uh Let's all be safe out there. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.